Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. Today, I intend to cover John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57, the end of the chapter. I'm going to entitle this section, The Consequences of Lazarus' Resurrection. You recall in the last two audios, in verses 1 through 44 of John chapter 11, I covered the resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus in Bethany and Mary and Martha's interactions with Jesus in connection with that event. So now we're going to start with verses 45 through 48 in John chapter 11. There are no parallel verses, so we'll pick up the story here. Verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. Therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, what's it referring to? The fact that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, who were these Jews who had come to Mary? These are the Jews who came to lament and mourn because Lazarus had died. Well, and if you recall from our last audio, the previous verses in John, they had followed Mary. When Mary heard that Jesus had arrived, Martha told her, Mary headed out of the house. The mourners thought that she was headed to the tomb. Instead, she was headed to Jesus. They followed Mary to Jesus, and then Jesus went to the tomb, raised Lazarus from the dead, and all the Jewish witnesses saw it. It was a very well-attested miracle. And when they saw it, they believed because resurrections from the dead tend to make you believe in the power of the person who did the resurrection. Once again, miracles a signpost, it's a sign that points people to heaven. Verse 46, but some of them, some of those Jews who had gone to Mary to mourn and who saw the resurrection, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Isn't that something? They had just seen a miracle, a stupendous miracle, and instead of believing in him like their compadres did, they go snitch on Jesus and run to the Pharisees. Well, he did a resurrection from the dead. Isn't that horrible? These people are real pieces of work, the Pharisees. They, they really are, and they're, and they're allies. Verse 47, so the chief priest and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, what are we going to do since this man does many signs? Now, the chief priest can either refer to the big shot priest in the family of Aaron, but most probably refers to the high priest. There's more. There's only one at a given time, but the successor, or the excuse me, the previous high priest who have been either removed from office or resigned for whatever reason, they they keep their honorary title, and they still had a lot of clout, and they and they were probably in the Sanhedrin. That's probably who is referring to here. So the chief priest, the people who had clout in the in the Sanhedrin, and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees couldn't do it by themselves, even though they hated the Sadducees, who had the majority on the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees had a minority. They got together because they were all united in their opposition to Jesus. So they convened the Sanhedrin and said, what are we going to do since this man does many signs? Now you notice they didn't deny that he was doing the signs. They said they admitted that he was doing the signs, but what they were worried about was not whether the signs were true or not, but what were the consequences of those signs? Verse 48, if we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. Yes, that's what was happening. They were right about that. Then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation. Now that place in the NIV margin has temple. And when the Jews refer to our place, they were probably referring to their temple. We, I can give you a quote from Adam Clark that tends to emphasize that. Quote, the temple only is understood 
is clear from Acts 6.13, Acts 6.14, 2 Maccabees 1.14, and 10.7, where it is uniformly called the place, or the holy place, because they considered it the most glorious and excellent place in the world. And they were worried about losing that most glorious and excellent place in the world. They were scared that there was going to be a religious uprising, a messianic uprising, which would replace the Romans, the Romans, or which would attempt to replace the Romans. The Romans would be scared about that and come out, come down, and remove the Jews' jurisdiction over the temple. Now, remember, the Jews did have a place, either that temple or their place. If it's if it's place, that means their status. What kind of status did the Sanhedrin have? Well, they weren't complete slaves of the Romans. They had certain civil and religious privileges. They could try non-capital cases. They could try religious cases. And they did have control of the temple complex, so they, they had some power and they were worried about losing it. Even though they didn't have total power, the Romans had oversight of the country. Now, it's ironic they're complaining, worried about if we let Jesus keep doing signs, we're going to lose our place in our nation. They stopped him. They killed him. And what happened? They lost their place in their nation. The temple was destroyed. The temple, if the place is the temple, it was destroyed in AD 70. The nation was destroyed in AD 70. So they didn't make a good career move here by killing Jesus. From their point of view, they lost it all. If they had just believed in Jesus, they would have seen a spiritual kingdom established that would have much transcended the glory of that little Jewish political kingdom that they were contemplating. Now, notice that the signs that Jesus had done recently were big ones, as Adam Clark mentions. There was the cure of the man born blind, which was in September or October, the last Feast of Tabernacles in John 9. The raising of Lazarus is sometime a month or two later. We don't know when, and the period between that and the last... Pa and the and, excuse me, the period between the Feast of Dedication, which is December, and the last Passover, which is in March or April. So in the last couple, last half year, let's say, there were some big signs done. Healing of a man born blind and the resurrection of somebody dead. Those are messianic miracles, folks. Only the Messiah can do miracles like that. I think I mentioned already, but I'll mention it again, that Mary was completely vindicated by telling Mary privately that Jesus had arrived for fear that the Jews there to share in the morning might want to do Jesus in. Well, they did. There were some there that wanted to do Jesus in. They reported Jesus to the Pharisees. So Mary was quite proper in her prudence. So we finish our discussion of those couple of verses by noting how ironic it is that if the Pharisees had not opposed Jesus, they wouldn't have lost their temple and they wouldn't have lost their nation. But by opposing Jesus, he says, I'm going to come in the glory of my angels. I'm going to wipe you guys out, as in the Olivet Discourse. And there's not going to be one stone of the temple remaining on top of another stone. We go to verses 49 and 50. One of them, one of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Now, remember that now, and when it says that he was high priest that year, that does not mean that the high priesthood was an annual office. It was not. It just means that at that particular year, Caiaphas was the high priest. He was the official high priest of that year, and he says, you know nothing at all. Now, who's he saying this to? He is saying it to the Pharisees and the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, who'd call the Sanhedrin together. Now, my question first is, is why would he chastise them? You know nothing at all. They were worried about Jesus doing signs, and Caiaphas was worried about doing signs, so why is Caiaphas chewing them out? We'll take up that question in just a minute. Caiaphas, let's give some details about Caiaphas. He was high priest from 18 to 36 A.D., according to the NIV Study Bible. He was deposed by Vitellius, who was governor of Judea, and who became later the last uh, Roman emperor in the year of four emperors, after which the, during the Civil War, which occurred after Nero was killed. 
It's an interesting historical note for those of you who care about ancient Roman history. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas, and of course he was the guy that was prominently figured in the crucifixion narratives, and we'll talk about that when we get there in John. Annas had been kicked out of the high priesthood by the Romans in AD 15, and Caiaphas had taken over. All right, now let's go back to this question on why Caiaphas is reaming out his fellow Sadducees, or excuse me, his fellow Sanhedrin members. I don't know if Caiaphas was a Sadducee or not. He was a high priest. But his fellow, his fellow, Sadduce, uh, fellow rulers in the Sanhedrin. The NIV Study Bible says this was typical of Sadducean rudeness. That Bible says that Josephus, quoting Josephus, says that in intercourse with their peers, Sadducees were as rude as they were to aliens. <laughs> that doesn't mean aliens from outer space. It means aliens from outside of foreigners who had come into Israel. They were rude people. Not surprising, they were also murderers. Murderers tend to be rude. All right, so let's go back to the question. Why was Caiaphas chastising the chief priests and the Pharisees and, and the other Sanhedrin members? Why was he doing that? They were all in agreement that Jesus was in danger. Here's my suggested answer. Caiaphas was getting on them for wavering about killing Jesus. He's saying, look, you guys, you saw, you're debating about what to do, what to do. Well, it's clear what we need to do. We need to kill him. You need to put some backbone in your opposition. The NIV Study Bible says that Caiaphas was more interested in political expediency than justice. And I say that makes him a judicial murderer, which, as a matter of fact, Caiaphas was. He was a judicial murderer. And there's no murderer worse than one who uses the court system to do it because that puts fear and loathing in, into the hearts of the citizenry who cannot get justice anymore in their courts. Now, here's what Caiaphas said to the Sanhedrin, verse 50. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. And that's where I'm saying he's saying, hey, we need to kill him. We need to kill him. You're not considering that. You're being too soft. Now, it's ironic. John later calls him a prophet in a certain sense. He predicted that one man should die for the people. Jesus did die for the people. But the results were not what Caiaphas expected. It was the launch of the Christian church, which bedeviled those persecuting rabbinic Jews terribly until 87, in which case they were totally destroyed. But the way Caiaphas was taken is we need to kill Jesus so that the whole nation, the whole Jewish visible rabbinic order would not be destroyed. Well, Jesus did die for the people, and the whole nation perished. So Caiaphas was wrong in his assumptions. He said Jesus would die, the nation would live. Actually, Jesus died, and the nation was destroyed. What, where was Caiaphas is wrong in his predictions and his assumptions? He predicted that Christ would be acknowledged as a political king by the people. He was wrong about that. The people did not acknowledge Jesus as a political king. Jesus wouldn't let them. He thought that Christ would make an insurrection against Rome. He was wrong about that. And he thought the Romans would react against Christ and destroy the temple and nation. He was wrong on all counts. He just completely did not understand his enemy. He didn't, and you know, one of the first things you have to do if you're in politics and war, you have to understand your enemy. Caiaphas did not understand Jesus at all. John 11, verses 50 through 53. He, Caiaphas, did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Now, here, John takes Caiaphas's prediction and turns it into sort of a prophecy. It's not as a Holy Spirit-inspired prophet, of course, as John Gill points out. But God used his natural words and thoughts to make a prophecy out of his natural words and thoughts, kind of like Balaam, as John Gill points out. Balaam was used even though he was not a prophet of God. He was used by God. It's so ironic that this 
this so-called prophecy here is coming from the recognized head of God's visible people, the high priest, as John Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. So the prophecy was that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Of course, the nation means the church, not the nation of Israel. The new Israel, as I, I, I can put it that way, he's going to die for the new Israel, the new nation, as opposed to the old nation of Israel. So that prophecy was that, so, that quote-unquote prophecy was carried out. In verse 52, John adds this, And not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. Now, Caiaphas didn't say anything about uniting the scattered children of God, but John is saying this is what the consequence was of Jesus dying. He united the scattered children of God, not meaning the Israelites, but the Gentiles as well as the Jews. The, the sheep that were of a different fold that he mentioned earlier in the last chapter, in John chapter 10. Jesus united the Gentiles and the Jews in one people of God. That's good news, folks. That's the church. Verse 53, so from that day on they plotted to kill him. So finally the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders finally pulled the trigger and they said, okay, we're not going to put up with this nonsense anymore. We're going to kill Jesus. We're going to murder him. So th Jesus has really made things hot for himself at this point. Again, we're getting near to the end of his Korean ministry. Let's go to, again, the idea that Jesus is going to unite the scattered children of God. I said they were the Gentiles, the the sheep of the the other sheep of the fold that were not in the fold yet. Let's look at how Jesus is the Savior of the world. This is the world, meaning the Gentile world as well as the Jewish people. This is an idea that's scattered all through the book of John, and so I want to emphasize it here. Look at John. These scriptures come, by the way, from the NIV Study Bible. This is John 1.29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sin of the Jews, but the sin of the Gentile world. John 3.16. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the what? The world. That means the Gentile world in addition to the Jews. John 4.42. And they told the woman, We no longer believe of what this is the people talking to the Samaritan woman who who was testifying of Christ. They told the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. In other words, not just the Savior of the Jews, like the Samaritans thought, but the Savior of all non Jewish people in the world. John ten sixteen. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. That's referring to the the union of the Gentiles and the Jews into one church. And there's more verses which I won't go over, but there, that's a common theme. We need to take cognizance of it, that Jesus died to unite Jew and Gentile. That's one of the big themes of the early churches. Paul tried to, and Peter, you know, they constantly had this problem of how do we get the Gentiles into the Jewish church and why are the Jews resisting the universal application of the gospel and all that? Of course, that's a big theme. We go now to verse 54, John 11. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with his disciples. Now, Ephraim is, people disagree on where this place is exactly. The NIV Study Bible says it's Ophrah, not Oprah, like in Oprah Winfrey, but Ophrah. A town about 15 miles north of Jerusalem, Gil and Clark say it's Ephraim in the town of in the tribe of Benjamin, which might be the same thing as the NIV Study Bible is saying. I don't know. John Gill says rather it's the wilderness in Judea where John preached near Bethany beyond the Jordan, that which John Gill and most traditional people say is right across the Jordan River to the east. Some people say it's the wilderness of Beth Haven, Beth Haven, which is right north of Jerusalem. Joshua. 
1812, their, their border on the north side began at Jordan, ascended to the slope of Jericho on the north through the hill country westward, and ended at the wilderness of Bethaven, which is north of Jerusalem. Well, who knows? Actually, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is he got out of town because it wasn't time for him to get killed yet. His hour had not yet come. He stayed there with his disciples. He took his disciples, and they were safe there in the country. Now, Jesus obviously knew the attitude of the Jews. That's why he didn't go back to Jerusalem. He didn't go back to Jerusalem after raising Lazarus from the dead. How did he know? The word spreads. This is a small area. The word spreads. It's obvious. Everybody knew that the Jews were coming after Jesus. Now, how long did he stay in Ephraim with the disciples? Adam Clark speculates two months. I don't know how they know that, but that's what he says. Again, we are now in the period between the last Feast of Dedication, the last, the, in, which is in December, and the last Supper Passover, which is in, April, in March or April. So you're talking about one season from, you're talking about, what is that, December, January, February, March. You're talking about three or four months in that period. We don't know exactly, but close enough. We go to verse 55. The Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. Now, there's a lot of stuff that Jesus did in Perea, which John skips over. I'll mention that in my next audio. But now, and some of John's writing is a little is a, as out of time order, according to Robertson. But just in a, as a, to give you a general feel of the chronology here, we're getting near March or April where the last Passover occurred. We're getting near Passion Week. Jesus is going to descend from Perea or, or leave Perea and go to Jerusalem and be crucified. So we're getting ready for that. John 11:55. The Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. Now, to go to the Passover, you had to be ceremonially, ceremonially cleansed. And this was especially important in Passover, according to the NIV Study Bible. If you didn't do that, you couldn't keep the Passover. Now, here's an example of this. Remember when Jesus was taken to Pontius Pilate and the Jews from Caiaphas went to Pontius Pilate and said, we want to talk to you about crucifying Jesus. And Jesus said, uh, and, and um, Pontius Pilate agreed to talk to him. But the Jews would not enter into the headquarters, the Praetorium, Pilate's headquarters themselves, because that was the home of a Gentile. Pontius Pilate was a Gentile. Otherwise, as John 18:28 says, otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So you had to be clean as a whistle if you want to eat the Passover. So many people were going up to Jerusalem to purify themselves before the Passover, so they would leave early. It actually took seven or eight days, according to the Jewish rituals, to cleanse yourself, so they had to go early to the Passover. So the, the, Jerusalem's filling up with people. There were lots of people in Jerusalem during Passion Week when Jesus did his great last ministry there in Jerusalem. Here's some examples of what you might have to purify yourself from. Women might have menstruated. You've got to purify yourself. Somebody might have touched a dead body. Somebody might have had a funeral. Well, you've got to go purify yourself. Now, people in the country, that's talking about the countryside in Judea and Galilee. Both people came from both areas. So now we go to John 11, verse 56 and 57. They, that means the people who had come to the feast from the countryside, they were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple complex. They were probably standing there in order to go through their purification rituals. As they stood in the temple complex, or maybe they were just there talking, I don't know. What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? Now, there's doubt. Is Jesus going to show up here or not? Now, this is interesting. Commentators split on what did these people mean. The NIV Study Bible says this was a rhetorical question, expecting a no answer. No, of course he's not going to come down here. He'd get killed. 
Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, however, say it was a rhetorical question expecting a yes answer. What do you think? He won't come to the festival, festival will he? And Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says they expect a yes answer. Yes, of course he's going to come down here. He has to, right? All males have to come to the Passover. That's according to the law, and he's always keeping the law. Or maybe they, maybe they expect a yes answer because they know that Jesus is going around setting up his messianic kingdom. And what most perfect place to do that? is in Jerusalem during the Passover. So they're saying, yeah, of course he's going to come down here. John Gill, on the other hand, says it's a genuine question, not a rhetorical one. They didn't really know was he going to come. They knew there were some reasons favoring his appearance because it was Jesus' duty since all males had to go to the Passover. And I just, Gill mentions that. And I also add the, the idea that perhaps they were thinking it's time to set up his messianic kingdom with a perfect place to do it. So there were reasons favoring his appearance, but there were also reasons favoring his staying away, the Sanhedrin, in verse 57, as we have just read, or getting ready to read, the Sanhedrin had published an order for his arrest, so naturally Jesus might not show up. So I, I think that they generally didn't know. I don't think they expected a yes or no either way. They just generally didn't know because the situation is dicey. It's volatile. It's unstable. Verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so they could arrest him. They probably also offered a reward for anybody who reported Jesus. So the stage is set for the great final conflict between the ruling Jewish authorities and Jesus during Passion Week. We'll take that up in John chapter 12, first of the chapter. Now, of course, we, uh, there's a lot of stuff that happened in the Prean ministry before that happens, before Passion Week happens, and that's recorded in Luke and sometimes in the other Synoptic Gospels. We're skipping all that because I've already covered all that in previous audios. And we're going, to sh we're going to also skip a little bit out of time order and, and jump ahead to where Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus for burial. Again, that's controversial, but that's according to A.T. Robertson. I think he's right. That's what happens next. I say next. I mean next in John. So we'll do that in the next audio in John chapter 12. Hope you stay tuned for that one. I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>